0: October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number five, Phoenix. Now, before we continue our story, I think it's a fair time to clear up some terminology. I've been calling those who believed like William Miller, Millerites for a reason. But to say Millerite sounds like they were all little William Millers, But, as we saw in the last episode, the movement became larger than the man. A better term would be to call all these people Adventists, as the word Advent refers to Jesus' arrival. Hence, Miller didn't say Second Coming, but Second Advent. Obviously, to call them Adventists might confuse people into thinking, oh, Seventh-day Adventist. So, I've stuck with Millerites, Now, after the great disappointment of October 22nd, 1844, we're now going to start using the term Adventist with a lowercase a. Miller is moving out of the picture, and it would be unfair to continue to call these people Millerites. Some of these people will stick with Joshua V. Himes and company, others will go into spiritual extremes, and still others would go on to form various churches, one of which is the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But we are not there yet. Patience, Padawan. Just know that when we use the word Adventist for the next act in our story, we're still not talking about Seventh-day Adventists, okay? Great. We last left our heroes, William Miller, Joshua V. Himes, Samuel Snow, Joseph Bates, and all the rest, at probably the worst moment of their lives. In hindsight, we can easily see how a handful of these Adventists would later go on to form a sprawling worldwide institution But they certainly didn't see that path in front of them. I mean, how do you recover from this? How do you tell everyone you know that Jesus is coming on October 22nd, sell your house or business, and then become a respectable church someday? Basically, how do you get people to take you seriously again? That was a serious question. The other major question the Adventists had to figure out was, what on earth happened on October 22nd, 1844? You'd think they could all at least agree that Jesus didn't come, but nope. Some, in fact, insisted that Jesus came spiritually and secretly. The majority, however, could at least see that Jesus hadn't come. So then what, if anything, did happen? Miller and Himes watched as various people stood up and set even more dates. Jesus will come in the spring of 1845, or else 1847, and on and on. Furthermore, various ideas began popping up that were at odds with what they had stood for. So the old presses were fired up again and pamphlets deployed to present the official view. What was this view? That the 2300 year prophecy of Daniel 8.14 was in fact correct, but the date was wrong. Of course, Miller didn't go out and set more dates, but he did urge people to be ready every day. Other Adventists, and especially the ones who eventually became Seventh-day Adventists, disagreed with Miller on this point. These guys said that the date was right, but the expected event was wrong. All of the calculations were right. The 2300-day prophecy began in 457 BC, just like Miller had said, except their understanding of what it foretold was wrong. It wasn't the second coming at all, but something different. With these guys, the great search was on to find an explanation. What did Daniel mean when he said that at the end of the 2300 days or years, then the sanctuary would be cleansed? Miller had taken this to mean the earth, cleansed with fire. To summarize, we can put it like this. This group had more confidence in the dates and events that added up to 1844 than in Miller's interpretation of the cleansing of the sanctuary. The phrase is debatable and vague, and while the prophecy's starting point, that is, when the decree goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, was just a matter of history. So when they looked at the situation and were trying to figure out what happened, they decided that they could have greater confidence in the numbers, in the math that added up to 1844, than they could in the interpretation of what the cleansing of the sanctuary actually foretold. In January 1845, two Adventist editors, Apollos Hale and Joseph Turner, took it a step further and argued from the parable of the wedding feast in Luke 12 that the time had come when, as the parable says, the unworthy were thrown outside the house and the door to the feast was closed. Ergo, they concluded, after October 22nd, everyone's fate was sealed. No one could turn to Jesus or away from him after that date. We have come to call these the shut-door believers. Now, it seems kind of obviously absurd, 170 years later, to think that the door shut in 1844 on people's salvation. Again, you have to think about it from their perspective. They had just suffered an immense spiritual trauma. They were looking for answers. Meanwhile, they were being ridiculed and mocked by fellow Christians, to them, this may very well have felt as if the line between the saved and the lost were manifest. They were being jeered in the papers. Family disowned them. School kids mocked them. They were called deluded, deceived, and on and on. We quoted Hiram Edson last week as saying that these last few months were the most spiritually enriching months of his life. October twenty third was a great disappointment. But it didn't invalidate the whole experience. These men witnessed the excitement of the urgency. They witnessed believers being shunned by their churches or families and banding together, spending everything they had for the cause of spreading the gospel. And how did the established churches look by contrast? Lazy? Indifferent? Satisfied with plodding along, doing the church thing week in and week out? They didn't hunger to see people accept Jesus. They didn't sacrifice everything they had for him. Yes, they ended up being wrong about Jesus coming on that specific day, but many of them felt that being wrong was still a more valuable experience than if they had just stayed put in their pews and been right. So, believing that the door of salvation was now shut was, as we've seen, theological, but it also seemed confirmed by their experience many other Christians treated them terribly. By contrast, the open-door Adventists thought that the date was wrong, but that the event was right. Jesus really was coming again, and people still needed to be told. The door we speak of was this door of salvation, the chance to be saved. People still had this chance. After all, how could the door be shut if nothing had happened on October 22nd? Jesus hadn't come yet. Now, Miller was decidedly in the shut-door camp in the immediate aftermath. On December eleventh, 1844, he wrote, quote, We have done our work in warning sinners and in trying to awake a formal church. God in his providence has shut the door. We can only stir one another up to be patient and be diligent to make our calling and election sure, end quote. Thus, we should only be spending our time inspecting the troops and encouraging them, because there's nothing else we can do. It's too late for everyone else. But the mainstream of Millerites, including Miller, would eventually realize that since Jesus didn't come, then there must be time for people to be saved. Miller bitterly regretted the partisan spirit that had manifested itself in the way some of his followers had called other churches Babylon. He reiterated to some friends the following summer that he had never intended on forming his own church, but hoped that his message of Jesus coming would be something that all churches would embrace. But this is the regret of hindsight. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. Still, the fact remained that Miller's followers were spiritually homeless. Many of their home churches wouldn't let them back, or else they couldn't face the humiliation of going back. With that, William Miller began to slip into the background. He was done. Miller reached sixty-two years of age just a few weeks after October twenty-second and had spent the lion's share of his remaining twenty years of life preaching this message. Undoubtedly, he was tired and thought this next phase was a younger man's game. William Miller had run the race, and while Miller would stick around the movement for some time, something in him seems to have broken and he more or less just gave advice to Joshua v. Himes, who had taken over the movement. The mammoth challenge that Himes faced was in holding the group together. It's natural to search for an explanation for what happened, and various people found various explanations. Miller himself came up with the explanation that date setting was wrong and that nothing happened. He exerted immense gravity to keep everyone, including Miller, sticking to the same story. That's what happened. Got it? Himes had his hands full. Many of the Adventists wanted to keep setting dates. There was certainty in setting dates. It wasn't easy to put all your hopes on a specific date and then go on to say, Ah, well, I guess we don't really know. Ha ha, well, that was fun. Some were addicted to certainty. They had to know when. They had to have a specific time that they were preparing for. And to their credit, Miller and Himes grew to greatly discourage this trend as Miller had never really been one for setting dates from the beginning. Out of this primordial pool of disappointment and discouragement crawled dozens of groups, all with their theory about what went wrong. Some of them came up with some pretty entertaining theories. Samuel Snow, the guy best remembered for interrupting Joseph Bates' sermon in order to share his new light that Jesus would come on October twenty-second, eventually grew to consider himself to be the prophet Elijah. Others thought Jesus was now waiting to come, but couldn't until his followers beckoned him with unceasing prayers, night and day. Some said Jesus had come invisibly, and that now we were all in heaven. In heaven, of course, Jesus told us that there is no marriage, and so these noble fellows left their wife and children and formed sexless spiritual unions with each other. Out of the demolition derby of explanations, only one view survived infancy. It isn't pertinent to our discussion, but it is interesting to note here that the Baha'i faith and Seventh-day Adventists have a strange connection. You will recall that Millerism's revised focus came to the third week of May 1844, before Samuel Snow helped push it to the fall. Well, the Baha'i were founded on May 23rd, 1844, and actually take a great interest in the Millerites. Some even hold one of the Seventh-day Adventist Church's founders, Ellen G. White, to be a prophet. The two faith communities stood together, if unknowingly, on slavery and many end-time Bible prophecies, among other things. What do you know? And back to our regularly scheduled program. The group that most successfully survived the brutal post-disappointment uh, disappointment were, surprise, surprise, the eventual Seventh-day Adventist Church, They were among those reading the Bible, praying, and generally scratching their heads as to what happened. They knew that something had happened. The date was right, but they were unsure of what. That is, until a man named Hiram Edson took a walk in a cornfield. That's right. For all practical purposes, the path of the Seventh-day Adventist church began in a cornfield. How romantic, how profound. The story goes that Edson and a friend probably O.R.L. Crozier, were praying together in a barn on October 22, 1844. Their prayers turned from eager expectation of Jesus' coming to prayers for answers as the clock ticked away into a new day. As they emerged on the morning of October 23, 1844, D-Day plus one, quote, Heaven seemed open to my view, Edson would later recall, He claimed to see that Miller had it all wrong. Miller, you will remember, had read Daniel 8, 14, the vague prophecy about the sanctuary being cleansed after 2,300 years, and concluded that this verse was about the world. Jesus would come and cleanse the world of sin and evil. Edson's vision indicated that, no, the world wasn't the sanctuary being referenced here. After all, In constructing the Hebrew sanctuary of the Old Testament, Moses had been told in Exodus 25 that the sanctuary he was to construct was based off of something like it in heaven. Just as the work of the priests moved from the holy place to the most holy place towards the end of the Jewish year, so Jesus is making the same symbolic move towards the end of human history. Creek, creek, that's the sound of your rusty knowledge of Leviticus calling for your attention. What's interesting about Edson and Crozier is that they seemed to sit on this new idea for a while. They eventually got something published on it in February of 1846, almost 18 months after the vision. And in terms of how fast the early Adventist information network was, that was pretty slow. Now, it wasn't like they weren't trying, but it seemed to have taken a long time for them to catch some wind. A spiderweb of newspapers and personal correspondences link the major and minor thought leaders of the movement. For instance, when Samuel Snow proposed that October 22, 1844 was the date Jesus was going to come back, it took about a month to convince everyone. But the question that Edson and Crozier were hung up on was the one that anyone would ask as soon as they published this news. So what? What? I mean, who cares if Jesus moved from one part of this heavenly sanctuary to another? Crozier and company eventually came up with two reasons for this interpretation. First, like the high priest on the Day of Atonement, the only day he was permitted into the most holy place, Christ our high priest was busy transferring the sins of the wicked onto the scapegoat or Satan. Second, Jesus was entering into marriage with the New Jerusalem, or the church, as they are both called the Bride of Christ in the Bible. This wedding had to take place in order for him to return. This rudimentary beginning to what would eventually be called the Sanctuary Doctrine was clearly inadequate. Some of the holes in Crozier's explanation may already be apparent to you, but they were later addressed in the 1850s as this doctrine became a sort of template for understanding salvation. After all, wasn't the whole system of sacrifices and ritual meant to communicate the deep truths of the Messiah's self-sacrifice to cleanse the world of sin? So it seemed natural to look to it for a deeper explanation about how the whole salvation thing works out. Crozier and Edson's ideas led to an expansion of thought regarding salvation. Conservative Christians then and now assert that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, and therefore we have salvation. While these two Adventists didn't deny that formula, the sanctuary ideas that were swirling around in their heads made it clear that there was more to the story. After all, are we really saved in the fullest sense of the word? Look around. There's still crime and war and disease and all of that. Therefore, the Second Coming is part of the salvation process. Without that, salvation is kind of a joke. But then, Why is there this 2,000-year gap between the cross and the second coming? Why not just finish it all at once? Obviously, they argued, Jesus was also working out our salvation from heaven. He was doing something for the past 2,000 years. It's not like he was just sitting around up there. The sanctuary seemed an appropriate model to explain exactly what Jesus was doing. Just as the high priest constantly was applying the blood of the sacrifices and interceding for his people, so was Jesus. And just as the high priest went once a year into the most holy place to clean up the sanctuary from all of the blood offerings, so Jesus moved into this work in 1844. Like I said, it wasn't a perfectly clear explanation, but it was enough. Finally reassured, the men published some articles that didn't have much circulation. As we've said, it wasn't until February 7, 1846, that Crozier really got the ideas out there and caught the attention of our old hero, Joseph Bates. Bates, a guy you could never bench even if you tried, immediately latched on to these ideas and, by May, had apparently secured a copyright for a book on the subject. If you need to know anything about Joseph Bates, it's that he, like Han Solo, fires first. It's worth pausing for a moment to sketch out Joseph Bates' story, who will emerge as the primary founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Born in Massachusetts, he was raised in New Bedford, the whaling capital of the United States at the time. Herman Melville, who would later write Moby Dick, worked in New Bedford as a whaler during this time. And unlike Melville, Bates had always wanted to be a sailor, which his dad responded to by patting him on the head and saying, "'That's nice, son.' In June 1807, at 15, he finally prevailed upon his father to jump on the maiden voyage of a ship tragically called Fanny as a cabin boy. On their way back from England, the crew were amusing themselves by baiting a shark that was swimming nearby. Young Joseph somehow managed to fall off into the water at precisely this moment, only to be rescued just in time, and this won't be the last time our hero will have an issue with falling off a ship, either. Two years later, his ship struck an iceberg, and he was trapped in the ship's hold with a friend, listening to the screams of the other crew members as they lay dying. He managed to escape this mess with the captain and some others, and headed to Ireland to refit and repair. As they went on towards Russia, their original destination, some Danish privateers captured them. While the captain offered a bribe to Bates and the others not to tell that they had business dealings with Great Britain, the Danish captors managed to press the truth out of him when they showed him a little box designed to cut off his fingers. I'm pretty sure this qualified as the worst cruise ever, and I hope Royal Caribbean refunded his ticket. Now, oh, that was all good and fine, but it was in 1810 that the adventures became less romantic. Kidnapped in Liverpool, England, by a press gang, he spent the next five years in British custody, just one of the thousands of Americans pressed into British Navy in the fight against Napoleon. America would eventually have to fight a war with England before Bates would be released, the same war, I should add, that saw a young William Miller converted to Christianity And coming home, Bates and the crew mutinied. Bates went on to marry Prudence a couple of years later before taking off again, only stopping home three times in ten years. He would continue to sail on and on, having adventures in Brazil and elsewhere, and we'll get to those at some point. But he finally settled down at the age of 36, having saved about $10,000, and ended as a captain and part owner of a ship. It's hard to say for sure what that would be worth today, but it would probably be somewhere over $200,000. So he ended up doing okay for himself, managing to keep his fingers and all. Throughout his journeys, Bates had gradually come to give up alcohol and tobacco. He topped that by giving up swearing, so he was a sailor who didn't drink, chew, smoke, or swear. The writing was on the wall. During one of his brief vacations home, Prudence had noticed his poor taste in books and slipped a little New Testament among them, which Bates began reading. Events unfolded quickly, from the impactful death of a crewmate that stirred up all the right questions to his attending church whenever he was home. In the end, a pastor in the Christian Connection Church baptized Bates at a revival meeting. Joseph Bates had finally settled down. Well, at least in one sense. Joseph Bates threw himself into whatever he did, which now meant devouring books and ideas and, as we've seen, catapulting to the front pews of the Millerite movement. Naturally, after he'd given up tobacco and alcohol and all of that, he thought others should as well. In his last voyage at sea, Bates declared his ship to be free of such evil influences to the utter dismay of his crew. Lucky for them, They weren't around in the early 1840s when Bates gave up meat and became a vegetarian. Being a vegetarian in the 1800s was no picnic. There were no meat substitutes, not a lot of friends for support, and, worst of all, no Taco Bell. So my hat is off to Joseph Bates. Adventists today are big on health, and Joseph Bates was so far ahead of the rest of the would-be Seventh-day Adventists that it would be another 20 years before they caught up. The point of all this is to show Bates' consistency here in pushing for reform. Yes, he pushed for health reform and was even an early abolitionist, but he recognized in the Millerite movement a kind of spiritual reform that swallowed up all the others. He began to drift away from his involvement in the other movements in order to focus on preaching the second coming. When asked why he had abandoned them, he told his former colleagues that all who accepted the soon coming of Jesus would naturally be led to give up tobacco and slavery. Nevertheless, he wasn't fanatical about any of this. He presented his beliefs forcefully, but never beat people over the head with them. During an ill-advised trip to the South to preach, during which his life was more than once threatened for being an abolitionist, a Southern judge accosted him, accusing Bates of wanting to take away his slaves. Yes, Judge, Bates replied, I am an abolitionist and have come to get your slaves, and you too. He went on to reassure the judge that he wouldn't know what to do with his slaves, even if he freed them immediately. He was there to preach, believing that those who accepted the message would give up the nonsense of slavery and alcohol. Bates weathered the great disappointment as well as anyone. He was constantly looking for answers as well to what had happened on October 22nd, but he didn't give up. Giving up was not in his nature. He remained convinced that something had happened on that date, and that put him firmly in the camp of the shut-door Adventists. Meanwhile, Himes organized a conference of 61 delegates in Albany in April of 1845 to unify the movement and to stop the bleeding of fanaticism. 61 delegates attended this conference, and it completely failed to bring unity. Four main groups emerged from the wreckage of this conference. Sylvester Bliss formed the American Millennial Association, from which Himes took many and formed the Adventist Evangelical Church. Second, George Storrs, another Millerite leader and spiritual grandfather of the Jehovah's Witnesses, took some and formed the Life and Advent Union. Third, Jonathan Cummings... Another follower of Miller formed the Advent Christian Church and went on to set yet another date in the 1850s for Jesus' return. And finally, we have the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Miller himself didn't join any of these groups, preferring to consider himself at last an open-door Adventist, which is to say that nothing happened on October 22nd at all. Besides, he had always been sensitive to the claims by his critics that he was out to form his own denomination and didn't want to go anywhere near that. Joseph Bates reflected on the Albany conference with bitterness. To him, something had happened on October 22nd. Maybe it was the sting of their failure or the temptation to distance themselves from the fanatics and the spiritualizers out there, but either way, he couldn't be pushed away from his conviction. He just needed to figure out what had happened, and he knew the other three groups didn't have the answer. And that's why Crozier's article about the sanctuary was such a godsend to Bates. Bates became the magnetic force that was bringing the pieces together. He excitedly invited Crozier and Edson to meet him and discuss their views some more. Bates himself had something equally momentous to share with these men, Something that had been stewing in that untiring mind of his for a while. Miller gave the church the Adventist part. Bates was about to give it the Seventh day part. And he owed it all to a fiery widow who nearly scolded a pastor during his sermon. So next week we'll meet Rachel Oakes. <music> Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is history Project.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews, sometimes I do bonus episodes, you know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenues History Podcast and I want to talk some more about it. Other times I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So. If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself